man that stood up in a prayer meeting and he clasped his hands together and he said, where is the God of Elijah? And he sat down. Now, of course, you can imagine the whole group fell silent, just convicted until someone stood up and said, where are the Elijah's of God? And that's my question for me. That's my question for you. It's a very personal question. It's a question that asks you, so interact with me. Look at me now because you, you, can't, you can't come in here and go, wow, that's a good question to ask for the other people in the sanctuary. Our flesh is pretty squirrely. It likes to do that. It's got to be a penetrating question for your own soul. Examine yourself. Are you, are you an Elijah? Are you someone who is standing in the gap of the crumbling walls of our society? Even our world? And that's a really easy question to ask, honestly. In fact, gifted preachers can even make it preach well. But it's not, a, it's not really an easy question to answer. And so this series that we're doing called Standing in the Gap, this is a series that's intended to make you come up against the wall like you see on those television shows where they've got the suspected criminals and they line them up, bright lights, and they're asking the person whom the crime was committed against, which one did the crime. It's made... It's, the series is making us stand up against that wall and let the spotlight of the Word of God shine on us and say, are we, in fact, standing in the gap? Because it's really not an option. And we've got to fully lay ourselves on the altar. We saw last week that God seeks and searches for men, women, and, listen, and young people who will stand in the gap of the broken walls of society and defend His glory. God really does want His glory defended. He cares about His glory. Don't you care about your reputation? If you're slandered in a conversation, don't you want your friends who love you to defend your reputation? That's what it means to defend God's glory. We will live in a way, we will speak in a way, we will conduct ourselves in a way that defends God's glory. And it's easy to do in the church, right? I mean, it's easy to defend God's glory in the midst of your Christian brothers and sisters. It's really not so easy when you're out in the world, yet we're called to do that in the world. Elijah caught the eye of God. He walked right into the court of the wicked king Ahab. Look at verse 1. You've got to have your Bibles open. 1 Kings 17. If you don't have your Bible, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. 1 Kings 17. Remember from last week, he walked right in there and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. By the way, I want you to think of a room, a restaurant. Very, very high society restaurant. Where the waiters and the waitresses stay against the wall, looking at their patrons, looking at their tables for even the slightest indication of a need, and they hustle over and meet the need. Before whom I stand is somebody who is a servant, totally allegiant to God, who is at God's beckon, ready to go at a moment's notice. Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except 
by my word. This is Elijah. Elijah steps into the gap, into the breach of the broken walls, right into the stronghold of the wicked, most powerful person in Israel. And he says, there will be no confusion, no ambiguity as to who I am allegiant to. It's my God. And I will boldly stand in the gap. And then he sends a right hook. Listen, if you like fighting, you got to love Elijah. He sends a right hook to the jaw of the false god Baal. Look what he says. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Don't you remember that Baal? Baal's the storm god. The Canaanites worship Baal. He's not a god, but they worship this, this figure, this figurine, this force that's invisible and dead. They worship Baal as the storm god, the fertility god. He's the weather god. In fact, one king had a vision of Baal. And he wrote it down for us to read. And here's what he wrote. The heavens rain oil. The wadis, channels through the deserts, run with honey. So I know that the mighty one Baal lives. Lo, the prince, the Lord of the earth exists. You know how David wrote worship psalms to his God? That was a king who wrote a worship song to his God, Baal. And God's about to show his complete and sovereign control. He shuts off both, now get this, the rain and the dew. Why the rain and the dew? Well, much of the story of Elijah takes place above Samaria. Samaria is King Ahab's palace. That's where his palace is located. Above Samaria is the fertile plain, the fertile valley of Jezreel. Think Gideon. Remember when Gideon... The angel of the Lord came to Gideon and told him what he needed to do. Gideon was afraid. He said, God, would you please let me test you? I'm going to put a fleece out on the ground. Would you let the dew get on the fleece, but keep the ground around it dry? Then the next night he goes, well, Lord, can you, can you let me test you again? Can you keep the fleece dry, but all the ground around it dew, heavy with dew? You see, the Jezreel plain was known for its dew. You could go from October to April, the dry season, sometimes it wouldn't rain once, but the dew would be so heavy that it would would grow crops. And Elijah says, God's not going to just withhold the rain. You're not even going to get dew. There will be no moisture at all. By the way, God warned them. God, who is gracious and merciful, warn them. Parents, don't you do that to your children? Don't you warn your children? You don't go right from infraction to beat the snot out of them. Hopefully you don't quite get to that level anyways. Don't you warn them? Listen, if you do that again, here's going to be your consequence. That's your mercy. That's your love. That's your love prompting mercy. God had warned them. He wrote in Deuteronomy 28, the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. He told them, if you do not remain faithful to me, if you run after other gods and run after idolatry, I'm going to take away your rain. And it's going to harden the ground like iron. Your plows simply won't be able to break it. And he does. 
But friends, that's not what we're focusing on today. That's the introduction. What we're going to focus on today is what happens in the life of Elijah immediately after he pronounces God's judgment. It's important to note, now listen to this, it's important to note that it wasn't until after Elijah committed all in, goes to Ahab, that God begins his intensive training. Did you hear that? It wasn't after Ahab or Elijah laid himself fully on the altar and said, you're the one before whom I stand. I am all yours. You use me the way you want. Then God says, finally, I can catch, my eye can catch you, and now I'm going to train you for my uses. And that's exactly what we're about to see. And here's the first point, the first lesson. Those who do big things for God's kingdom must learn to obey him at all times. Friends, obedience is difficult. The most difficult command for bold, courageous Christians is the command that Elijah is about to get in verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide. Listen, bold, courageous Christians don't like that word. Prophets, by nature, want to be out on the streets. They want to be warning people. It's burning. The Word of God is burning in their soul. They've got to communicate it. They are God's ambassadors to people who need to hear from Him. They don't like anonymity. They don't like isolation, obscurity. They don't like to hide. Yet God commands him to go east of the Jordan. By the way, he came. He grew up east of the Jordan. He knows this territory. He knows the terrain. It's rugged. There's not a lot of people that live there. He's familiar with it. It's a place of utter isolation. Because guess what? Now listen. God does a lot of training when we're in the desert. God does a lot of training when we're in isolated, rugged, difficult places in our lives. Don't you remember Moses who was at the backside of the desert? That burning bush, that's when God commissioned him, began training him for what he was going to do through Moses. Don't you remember the Israelites who for 40 years wandered? Wandered in the desert, God training them, God helping call them to faith. He does a lot of work in the desert places and he prepares people for what he calls them to do. And listen, gap standers have to be taught to obey. Self-sufficiency. Yes, the world teaches it. The Bible condemns it. And self-reliance and self-confidence, they're not useful to God. And he drives them, he expunges them out of our character almost always through trials and difficulty. You see, Elijah received God's call to battle, and once he obeyed, here's what God does. It seems odd to us. God takes him out of the spotlight to make him fit for his use. Obedience is the first step in that training. Friends, unless we'll obey the last thing God told us to do, we won't be given the next thing he wants us to do. Unless we obey the last thing he's asked of us, he's not going to give us a next thing. 
There's a lot of us that don't know the will of God for the next step. It's simply because he won't give you that next step because you're not obedient in your current one. And we're going to see that godliness never comes with a title. It doesn't come from a given a position. It comes from being obedient and faithful. By the way, look at your chapter 1, the, right at the beginning. What is Elijah called? Look at your Bibles. Elijah of Tishbe, right? Look at the end of chapter 17. What's he called? He's called the man of God. Do you see the maturity? Do you see even by title, there's a maturity that is coming with Elijah? It's a process, and God never lays out his whole plan for our lives. He lays it out one step at a time. Has God told you fully what you're going to do all of your life? He won't do that. He gives you one step at a time, and if you want the next step, be faithful and obedient to the current one. See, Elijah's going to stand in the gap, and he confronted Ahab with God's judgment, and Elijah obeyed, and then God says, go hide, go east of the Jordan. Elijah obeys. It's one step at a time, and when Elijah obeys this step, God then says, okay, here's the next thing I want you to do. And it's the pattern that we're going to see all throughout his ministry. Obey God in this step, and it will lead you to his next one for you. In 1992, Denise and I clearly heard God's call to move from Lynchburg, Virginia to Atlanta, Georgia. There was a graduate school there that I wanted to receive my training for a counseling graduate degree. But we went down to Georgia twice. And we went down for the reason of trying to find a place to live and find a job. And both times came back having struck out. Yet God's clear, God's call was just unbelievably clear on our lives. We were to trust God and move to Georgia. It didn't make sense. It didn't agree with worldly wisdom. Friends, listen, I even had a Christian friend at the church that we worshiped at come up to me and say to us, that's not the way God works. You've got to get your plans laid out and then he'll bless you. great advice right straight from the world but we could not escape God's urging so we packed everything we owned into a rider truck and left for Georgia Elijah God is saying it might not be your style it may not make sense to you but go and hide and look what it says in verse 5 Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord he went and lived by the brook Kirith that is east of the Jordan. Listen, he didn't go for a weekend. He didn't leave a door open back home in case things didn't work out. He said, I'm all in. I'm fully committed. If God says go and hide in utter isolation and obscurity, then that's the step he has for me now. That's where I'm going. And he did all that God had commanded. Obedience. Is number one for gap standards. But number two, those who do big things for God must learn to depend on him. Look at verse three. God said to Elijah, you shall drink from the brook. And don't you think, come on, I mean, James says that Elijah had a nature like us. Elijah's a man like us. What if God told you after you just pronounced a, a, an Israeli-wide drought 
to go live by a brook that's going to provide you your water. What are you going to think going through your mind? God, I just told Ahab that it's not going to rain and it's not going to give dew for years and you want me to go live by Kirith? I know that area. I grew up there and Kirith is a channel. It's a wadi through rocky terrain and when it rains, it floods easily but as soon as the rain stops, it dries up almost instantly. How am I going to survive in the desert in a drought? God ever called you to do something where you had no feasible means of making it happen? That's what he does for gap standers. Listen, you fully put yourself on the altar, friends. Number one, I'm going to guarantee you God's going to teach us obedience. And number two, he's going to teach us to completely rely on him and not what we can do. He won't get the glory if you can do it. And Elijah is about to learn that God is faithful to those who stand in the gap for his glory. He's going to teach Elijah to rely on the daily bread of God's providence until Elijah can pray like Proverbs 30. Here it is. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's the trusting dependence that the Israelites had to learn in the wilderness. And friends, it's learned, I get this, it's learned when God puts you by the brook, not when you read it from a book. You've got to experience the place that only God can provide in order to learn to be dependent on Him. Well, we had very little money when we left for Atlanta. We had no place to call home, no job. We made it two and a half hours south of Lynchburg to Danville, Virginia, and the moving truck that we were using broke down right in the middle of an intersection. But an hour and a half later, Ryder got out there, got it running. But then on the way down to Atlanta, as we picked up the journey, it broke down again, and they put us in a hotel to make repairs. We're in a hotel. We had no children by this point. We've been married for two years, and Denise and I are looking at each other, and we're thinking the same thought. Did we step out of God's will? Was that lady right that told us this isn't the way God works? Well, we made it to Atlanta and that fear only increased. I had to get an emergency visit to a dentist to get a wisdom tooth pulled and our car had two flat tires. And right about that time, we got a check that was forwarded to our friend Mike Redman, whom we stayed with for two weeks while we found a place to live. And I had a check from Ryder, a partial refund for our troubles. The check came to within pennies of the cost of those tires. And God already began teaching us, Tim, one step at a time, be obedient to what I'm asking you to do, and I will faithfully provide for every single need. We began to learn the faith of Hudson Taylor, who wrote his wife from China. We have 25 cents in all the promises of God, and we're about to learn this very thing. Because I was soon to take up my first youth pastor position in a very small church in Marietta, Georgia. And the church came to us and they said, listen, 
We've got enough money in the budget to provide health insurance, but we can't pay you a salary. Would you agree to receive whatever people designate on the bottom of their checks, their memo area, whatever they designate to the youth pastor fund? Would you, would you allow us to hire you and you trust the Lord to provide you? And I, I thought immediately it's so easy to call people to faith when you're not the one having to live it. But God had said, this is your next step. We could either obey or not, but he wouldn't give us our next step until we obeyed God in this one. So we said yes. God was clearly calling me to serve there. We never, ever knew what we would be paid week after week. Some weeks I would go and the treasurer would be counting the money. And I would be praying in my office, Lord, you know the bills that are coming up. And he would bring me the check for that day, and I would open the envelope with, tr- with trembling hands, and sometimes it would read $60. And I would go back home almost in tears to Denise, and I would say, honey, I don't know how we're going to make it. You know what? We never, ever, not once, lacked the money to pay our bills. God faithfully, faithfully, provided. Sometimes we couldn't go out to eat. In fact, very often we couldn't go out and do a movie or go out to eat. We just didn't have the money, but we had everything we needed, even if we didn't have everything we wanted. And God had called us to serve him. He put me in training in order for me to learn to completely trust God. But there's another step. God is teaching Elijah obedience. He's teaching him to depend fully on him, but now he's going to teach him Something that is extraordinarily difficult. Those who do big things for God must learn that his ways are higher than ours. Here's what he says to him. You shall drink from the brook. And look what he says next. I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. And verse 6, look what it says. It tells us that's what happens. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And I'm going to tell you, friends, there would have been a shiver that went right down the Jewish spine of Elijah. He knew the Pentateuch, he knew the Bible, he knew the first five books, he knew that ravens were unclean, they were spiritually defiled birds, he knew this because God's the one that said so. Here's what he says in Leviticus, and these you shall detest among the birds, every raven of any kind. You're going to feed me through an unclean bird? Lord, why? You fed the Israelites for 40 years with manna. Why can't you do that? I love sweet bread. Later, we're going to read that God fed Elijah miraculously through an angel who came down and put water and bread on a rock. We're going to find out much later. In fact, we just studied it. Jesus is going to feed people by taking a few fish and a few loaves of bread and multiply it for crowds up to 25,000 people. Why is God not going to take a few fish from the brook and a few stalks of grain and make meat and bread that way? Why ravens? Have you ever wondered that? God, why ravens? It just wouldn't have computed with Elijah's Jewish mind. 
But I think we begin to get a picture on this side of the New Testament because now we could go to Acts 10 and we can see that Peter has a vision. You remember this, right? In this vision, he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending and it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. I'm telling you, ravens were in there and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter was a good Jew. Peter knew his Old Testament. He recoiled instinctively, verse 14. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He was so horrified at the thought of eating an unclean animal that he initially blatantly defied the command of Jesus Christ. It's in red. That's the words of Jesus. So Jesus says to him, what God has made clean Do not call common. And right after the vision, three men show up at Peter's gate. And they come up and they say, listen, Peter, can you come with us? We've got a master. His name is Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's a God-fearing man, but he doesn't know about Jesus. And we think you know about Jesus. Can you come and explain it to, to Cornelius? Friends, please get this. You ready? Cornelius was a Gentile, and to a Jew, a Gentile was an unclean person. They were the ravens of humanity. And because of that vision, however, Peter goes and he explained the gospel to Cornelius and his relatives and his close friends, all received salvation, and it's confirmed. Here's what verse 45 says. His friends were amazed. Peter was amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. All right, so listen, look at me. Look at me. Let's return to the bubbling brook. And let's watch the ravens fly in and they've got meat and they've got bread in their claws and in their beaks. Do you know what this next step that God would call Elijah to obey? You know what the next step was going to be, Elijah, listen to me, you're going to go to Zarephath. Friends, Zarephath is a Gentile town. And you're going to live with a Gentile widow. And you're going to live with her widow, her, her Gentile son. Because I've raised up Israel, Elijah. I've raised up my chosen people. I told Abraham that they're going to be a witness to the nations of my glorious love for them. And you're going to be a witness to Zarephath. You're going to be a witness to this Gentile woman. They need my salvation. So what you think are unclean birds, get used to it because I'm saying they're good. And you're about to learn now what you're going to need to know then. Gentiles are loved by me as well. So abandon what you think are the right ways and trust that my ways are higher than yours. This is extraordinarily difficult, yet it is an indelible part of our training. I don't know why, God, you allow things to happen the way you do, but your ways are higher than my ways. And if I've learned to be obedient in each step, and if I've learned to depend on you for every single thing I need, now I can learn to say your ways are even better than my ways, and I will trust you in them. 
Well, we went to Georgia with faith in our steps and stars in our eyes. I was going to be climbing the ladder of success. I was a professional counselor. I was going to get my graduate degree in the counseling ministry. Churches were going to clamor for my services. They were going to send people to me for help. That was my starry-eyed career dream. Then I became a youth pastor, clearly a step back. And the cold reality set in, I would need to take a part-time job. Yes, friends, listen, God always provides. He sent water in that brook, but Elijah, you got to get down on your hands and knees to get it. I'll provide, but you got to work. So I started delivering newspapers, and then we had our first child, Matthew, and I needed something more. So the highest paying job I could find in Atlanta was cleaning porta-potties all around metro Atlanta. Elijah had ravens, I had porta-potties. It was a truly humbling experience. It made no sense. God, I would say, as I'm driving this truck, did you forget I have an undergraduate degree? And this is the best you can provide me? Do you forget I was ser- I am serving you in ministry? Why am I driving this truck? Really? This is all you've got for me? God's ways are higher than mine. He needed, he knew I needed to learn humility and faithfulness. For Elijah and myself, however, listen, the bottom was about to drop out from beneath us and we're going to get now to the fourth intensive training principle. Those who do big things must learn that God will never, ever forsake them. Look at verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. You know, we're not told what went through Elijah's mind when that brook dried up, but Isaiah likely, likely penned it well. Here's what he wrote. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You ever felt like that? It may be the bottom of the pit. When you start to wonder if God has forgotten you. The God who gives has the right to take away as well. But that just goes against all of our perspectives. Our desire, isn't it? To get children. To have children when we marry. Not have God take one away. We want good health. We don't want the prognosis of cancer. We want a good career. We don't want to lose our job when we're 55. We want Churches want a good pastor to come to them and to grow. They don't want God to say it's time for that pastor to go to another church. And suddenly the church that Denise and I were ministering in started to struggle. We lost people. And I was laid off and it forced us to move back to New York. And at the very, very bottom and lowest point of my life, live with my parents. Friends, I really, truly felt that God had cast me off and abandoned me. My brook had utterly dried up. You ever prayed that God would give you a passion for him and use you greatly, but in your heart you're thinking, Lord, please don't let it hurt too much. I used to pray all the time. I still do. Lord, use me. And sometimes that little whispery, innocuous, fearful, anxiety-laden thought says, but Lord, I think I know what you might allow. And I am scared to death. 
A.W. Tozer says it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. See, God first has to cut us down to size before he builds us into useful men and women. You lay yourself on the altar and you say, God, I am all in. I am all yours. And God says, finally, somebody that's caught my eye. Now I'm going to put you into basic intensive training and you're going to learn obedience and you're going to learn to depend on me, not your own ability, not what you can make happen. You're going to have to depend on me and I'm going to put you in situations where you have no choice but to learn it. And then you're going to learn that my ways are higher than your ways and you've got to lay down your ways on the altar and trust me for mine. But I'm never going to let you forget, God says, how much I love you. And I will never let you forget what Isaiah then said next. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. It may feel like you are utterly alone by that dried up brook in the middle of nowhere. But God is likely nearer to you then than he has ever been before in your life. Will you stand in that gap? Really? The moment you step on that altar and you catch God's eye, He will take you through training that will make you more mature, more godly than you've ever been before, but it will be difficult. And you are going to learn to be obedient in every single step because He won't give you the next until you're obedient in the first one. And you're going to learn to depend on him. He can't use you if you don't. And you're going to learn that his ways are infinitely higher than ours. And they are good and they are perfect. And through all of that difficulty of training, you're going to remember and you're going to learn. He's got you so close to him, you are engraved on his hand. Don't fear and don't give in to despair. Elijah is an incredible example for us. But listen, let me remind you, all through this series, this is not about Elijah. This is about God. It's his autobiography. This is about his glory. And God's ability to take every single one of us, gifted or not very gifted, and use us for exactly what he wants to bring himself glory. Amen? Step on the altar and get ready for training. Lord, thank you for Elijah. Thank you for what we're learning. It is so challenging. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would give us courage, that you would give us strength to trust you. And Lord, when difficulty comes and we're called to obedience, Lord, and it doesn't appear that there's help on the horizon and we don't know how this could ever work, Lord, let us learn to depend every single day on you. And when things don't go the way that we want, when our starry-eyed vision gets clouded over, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that your ways are higher than our ways. And you are preparing us now for exactly what our next step is going to be. And Lord, let us remember we are engraved, just like those nail-pierced wounds in the hands of Christ, we are engraved forever. On your palm. 
And you are never nearer to us than when we're going through intense difficulty. Remind us of these things, Lord. Let us step on the altar. Use us, train us, make us gap standers that we can stand in the gap right where we are living, right in our schools, right in our colleges, right in our neighborhoods, right in our jobs, maybe even right in our church. And let us resist the spread of evil and defend your glory. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.